0: Welcome back, our fellow Patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast. I'm Judge Michael Warren, and today we continue our review of Article I of the Constitution. We have completed our examination of Sections 1 and 2 of the article, and last episode we began to dig into Section 3, which establishes and defines the powers of the United States Senate. We continue our exploration of the United States Senate in this episode. When I say we, I'm joined by Mike Girard and bombastic Brent Bassett and spectacular Sheila Guerin, and enchanting Aaron Mercino, thank you for all your support. Mike Girard will get us started. As we have
1: previously discussed, the first article of the Constitution establishes the Congress. Section 1 creates Congress, giving it all federal legislative authority. Congress is divided into two chambers, the House of Representatives and the Senate. Section 2 defines the authority and organization of the House of Representatives. Section 3 addresses the Senate. As we learned last episode, the first paragraph of Section 3 provides that the Senate is composed of two senators from each state. Each senator has one vote, and senators serve six-year terms. As originally
0: ratified, the next paragraph of Section 3 provides as follows. Immediately after they shall be assembled in consequence of the first election... They shall be divided as equally as they may be into three classes. The seats of the senators of the first class shall be vacated at the expiration of the second year, of the second class at the expiration of the fourth year, and of the third class at the expiration of the sixth year, so that one-third may be chosen every second year. And if vacancies happen by resignation or otherwise during the recess of the legislature of any state, the executive thereof may make temporary appointments until the next meeting of the legislature, which shall then fill such vacancies.
1: In other words, this paragraph provides that one-third of the Senate shall be elected every two years. Two-year terms are essential for the House of Representatives because they are directly elected by the people and should reflect the current sentiments of the people as nearly as possible. On the other hand, the Senate represents and defends the states. In addition, the Senate is vested with the authority to confirm or reject presidential appointments such as judges and ambassadors, and the power to ratify or disapprove treaties. The idea is that the Senate is a thoughtful, deliberative body which should have the long-term vision and perspective necessary to protect the national welfare. As such, Senators serve six-year terms. Moreover, the delegates never even considered having the entire Senate up for election at the same time. Instead, they quickly agreed that the Senators should be divided into classes, one class up every two years, along with the entire House of Representatives. There was relatively little debate on this issue. Instead, the focus was on the length of term. Once the Constitutional Convention settled on a six-year term, having one-third up for election every two years was nearly axiomatic. Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story summarized the rationale for staggered elections in his exemplary, Familiar Exposition of the Constitution of the United States. THE TERM OF OFFICE OF THE SENATORS COMMANDS A RESPECT AT HOME, WHICH ENABLES IT TO RESIST MANY UNDUE INROADS OF THE HOUSE OF REPRESENTATIVES, AND AT THE SAME TIME, ITS DURATION IS NOT SO LONG AS TO TAKE AWAY A PRESSING SENSE OF RESPONSIBILITY BOTH TO THE PEOPLE AND TO THE STATES. IN ORDER TO QUIET THE LASTING, LINGERING SCRUPLES OF JEALOUSY ON THIS HEAD, A clause OF THE CONSTITUTION PROVIDES FOR A CHANGE OF ONE-THIRD OF THE MEMBERS EVERY TWO YEARS. Thus the whole body is gradually changed in the course of the six years, always returning a large portion of experience, and yet incapable of combining its members together for any sinister purposes. No person would probably propose a less duration for the Senators than double the period of that of the members of the House. In effect, this provision changes within the same period the composition of two-thirds of the the body. Although the anti-federalists, those who opposed the adoption of the Constitution, savagely attacked the Senate as an aristocratic, anti-democratic, semi-royal, corrupt institution of near-monarchy, the idea of staggered elections of senators was pretty much ignored in the ratification debates. The provision also allowed for filling of vacancies by the legislature, or, temporarily, the governor if the legislature is not in session although the legislature would permanently fill the vacancy when they came back into
0: session. The next paragraph of Section 3 provides, No person shall be a senator who shall not have attained to the age of thirty years, and been nine years a citizen of the United States, and who shall not, when elected, be an inhabitant of that state for which he shall be chosen.
1: Thus, there is a minimum age requirement of thirty years. A senator must also be a citizen of the United States at least nine years, and must be an inhabitant of the state he or she is to represent at the time of the election. As we learned last episode, members of the House of Representatives must be at least 25 years old. The Constitutional Convention generally agreed with little debate that senators should be older. The first full draft of the Constitution presented to the Convention by a committee on August 6, 1787 provided that senators should be at least 30 years old. In Federalist Paper 62, James Madison explained why this age was appropriate.
2: The qualifications proposed for Senators, as distinguished from those of Representatives, consist in a more advanced age. A Senator must be 30 years of age at least, as a Representative must be 25. The Propriety of these distinctions is explained by the nature of the senatorial trust, which, requiring greater extent of information and stability of character, requires at the same time that the senator should have reached a period of life most likely to supply these advantages.
1: In other words, because the duties and responsibilities of the Senate are broader and more complex, including confirming presidential appointments and addressing foreign affairs, the additional five years was justified and warranted to better ensure that senators possess the wisdom, knowledge, and experience necessary to fulfill their role. In addition to putting together Webster's Dictionary, Noah Webster was a leading light of the Revolutionary Age. Under the pen name, A Citizen of America, he wrote that wisdom, stability, and a calm disposition had been proven in ancient times, and currently, as requiring a maturity of years.
2: In turbulent times, such restraint is our greatest safety. In calm times, and in measures, obviously calculated for the general good, both branches, Must always be unanimous. A man must be thirty years of age before he can be admitted into the Senate, which was likewise a requisite in the Roman government. What property was requisite for a senator in the early ages of Rome, I cannot inform myself, but Augustus fixed it at eight. Hundred Sestertium, between six and seven thousand pounds sterling. In the Federal Constitution, money is not made a requisite. The places of Senators are wisely left open to all persons of suitable age and merit.
1: Considering how much the ratification debates attacked the Senate on various issues, this particular qualification seems to have avoided taking fire. The next clause requires that any senator must be a citizen for at least nine years. This actually drew quite a bit of attention at the Constitutional Convention. The August 6th draft of the Constitution only required four years of citizenship. Pennsylvania Delegate Governor Morris started the debate. He moved that the period be four years plus a decade. He argued that strangers should not be admitted into our public councils. South Carolina Delegate Charles Coatsworth Pinckney seconded the motion. Connecticut's Oliver Ellsworth thought this unwise because it would discourage meritorious aliens from emigrating to the country. Pinckney countered,
0: As the Senate is to have the power of making treaties and managing our foreign affairs, there is a peculiar danger and impropriety in opening its door to those who have foreign attachments. I quote the jealousy of the Athenians on this subject, who made it death for any stranger to intrude his voice into their legislative proceedings.
1: Virginia's Colonel George Mason likewise supported the motion. Had he not become familiar with foreigners who had acquired great merit in the American Revolution, he would have favored barring any foreign-born senator. Madison agreed with the general sentiment of the motion, but thought it unnecessary as he believed the Congress could set limits to becoming a citizen, which would in turn ensure that only loyal, naturalized citizens could serve in the Senate. He also thought it would stain the Constitution and repel immigrants of talent.
2: Any restriction in the Constitution is unnecessary and improper. Unnecessary because the national legislature is to have the right of regulating naturalization, and can, by virtue thereof, fix different periods of residence as conditions of enjoying different privileges of citizenship. Improper, because it will give a tincture of illiberality to the Constitution, because It will put it out of the power of the national legislature, even by special acts of naturalization, to confer the full rank of citizens on meritorious strangers, and because it will discourage the most desirable class of people from emigrating to the United States. Should the proposed Constitution have the intended effect of giving stability and reputation to our governments great numbers of respectable Europeans, men who love liberty and wish to its blessings, will be ready to transfer their fortunes hither. All such would feel the mortification of being mocked with suspicious incapacitations, though they should not covet the public honors.
1: At this point, a man who knew a thing or two about immigrants voiced his opinion on the floor. Pierce Butler represented South Carolina at the convention, but as late as 1772, he commanded English troops in America who were trying to enforce British rule. In fact, one of his units was involved in the Boston Massacre. He was Irish and had served in Canada in the French and Indian War, returned to Ireland, came back to Canada in Nova Scotia, and then assigned to Boston. He married a local girl in South Carolina. He was called back to Great Britain in 1773, but instead he sold his commission and bought a plantation in South Carolina. With the onset of fighting in 1775, he joined the American cause and never looked back. He was elected to the South Carolina legislature in 1776 and continued in that service until 1789. He had what some might consider a surprising view he agreed that foreigners should be in the country for a long period before becoming eligible for service in the United States Senate. "'I am decidedly opposed to the admission of foreigners without a long residence in the country. They bring with them not only attachments to other countries, but ideas of government so distinct from ours that in every point of view they are dangerous.' I acknowledge that if I myself had been called into public life within a short time after my coming to America, my foreign habits, opinions and attachments would have rendered me an improper agent in public affairs. I'll mention the great strictness observed in Great Britain on this subject. Butler's confession was not enough to sway all the delegates. Benjamin Franklin, who was a globe-trotting celebrity, was concerned that too long a period would alienate the Friends of America in Europe.
0: I am not against a reasonable time, but should be very sorry to see anything like illiberality inserted in the Constitution. The people in Europe are friendly to this country. Even in the country with which we have been lately at war, we are now and had during the war. A great many friends, not only among the people at large, but in both Houses of Parliament. In every other country in Europe, all the people are our friends. We found in the course of the Revolution that many strangers served us faithfully, and that many natives took part against the country. When foreigners, after looking about for some other country in which they can obtain more happiness, give a preference to ours... It is a proof of attachment which ought to excite our confidence and affection.
1: Virginia's Edmund Randolph concurred with much of Franklin's sentiments. He also thought that principles of the Declaration of Independence and the state constitutions demanded that a short period of time be all that should be required. Pennsylvania Delegate James Wilson, a Scottish immigrant, was playing a key part in the Constitutional Convention. He came to the colonies in 1765, just as the Stamp Act sparked the first major crisis between England and the colonies. He wrote a very influential pamphlet opposing taxation without representation and helped Pennsylvania vote for independence in 1776. He thought a long period of citizenship to be a personal affront to him and America's allies across the world. He personally had experienced the embarrassment of not being able to partake in public service. I rise with feelings which are perhaps peculiar. I mention the circumstance of my not being a native, and the possibility, if the ideas of some gentleman should be pursued, of my being incapacitated from holding a place under the very constitution which I had shared in the trust of making. I must mention the illiberal complexion which the motion would give to the system— and the effect which a good system would have in inviting meritorious foreigners amongst us, and the discouragement and mortification they must feel from the degrading discrimination now proposed. I had myself experienced this mortification— On my removal into Maryland, I found myself from defect of residence under certain legal incapacities which never ceased to produce chagrin, though I assuredly did not desire and would not have accepted the offices to which they were related. To be appointed to a place may be a matter of indifference. To be incapable of being appointed is a circumstance grating and mortifying. Well, Governor Morris must have been shaking his head. He believed that the personal sentiments and experiences of Wilson, or any particular person, should not sway the convention. Calling upon reason, as opposed to emotion, he argued that the convention must be dispassionate on this issue and ensure that no one take office who did not have a sufficient time in the country to be a loyal and knowledgeable senator. In the course of doing so, he provided some very cheeky examples for the Convention to consider. "'The lesson we are taught is that we should be governed as much by our reason and as little by our feelings as possible. What is the language of reason on this subject, that we should not be polite at the expense of our prudence? There is a moderation in all things.'" IT IS SAID THAT SOME TRIBES OF INDIANS CARRIED THEIR HOSPITALITY SO FAR AS TO OFFER TO STRANGERS THEIR WIVES AND DAUGHTERS. IS THIS A PROPER MODEL FOR US? I WOULD ADMIT THEM TO MY HOUSE. I WOULD invite THEM TO MY TABLE. I WOULD PROVIDE FOR THEM COMFORTABLE LODGINGS, BUT WOULD NOT CARRY IT SO FAR AS TO LET THEM BED MY WIFE. I WOULD LET THEM WORSHIP AT THE SAME ALTAR, BUT WOULD NOT CHOOSE TO MAKE PRIESTS OF THEM. I would run over the privileges which emigrants would enjoy among us, although they should be deprived of that of being eligible to the great offices of government, observing that they exceeded the privileges allowed to foreigners in any part of the world, and that as every society from a great nation down to a club had the right of declaring the conditions on which new members should be admitted, there could be no room for complaint.' As to those philosophical gentlemen, those citizens of the world as they call themselves, I own, I do not wish to see any of them in our public councils. I would not trust them. The men who can shake off their attachments to own country can never love another. These attachments are the wholesome prejudices which uphold all governments.' "'Admit a Frenchman into your state, and he will study to increase the commerce of France. "'Add an Englishman, he will feel an equal bias in favour of that of England. "'It has been said that the state legislatures would not choose foreigners, at least improper ones. "'There was no knowing what legislatures would do. "'Some appointments made by them prove that everything ought to be apprehended from the cabal's practiced on such occasion.' I mention the case of a foreigner who left this state in disgrace and worked himself into an appointment from another to Congress. Despite Governor Morris's reasoning, his motion for a 14-year citizenship requirement in place of four years was defeated, seven states to four. Morris then moved for 13 years, and it was defeated by the same margin. On 10 years moved by General Pinckney, the votes were the same, After some additional discussion, nine years was proposed and passed six states to four. Also, the term resident was replaced with inhabitant, so a senator only needed to be inhabitant of the state at the time of the election as opposed to resident. There was no meaningful discussion on why this change was made, and it was skipped over in the ratification debates. When the Constitution was being considered for ratification, Madison defended the nine-year citizenship requirement in Federalist Paper No. 62. He wrote that it was a prudent medium. Between a
2: total exclusion of adopted citizens, whose merits and talents may claim a share in the public confidence and an indiscriminate and hasty admission of them, which might create a channel for foreign influence on the National Councils.
1: The nine-year minimum was hardly discussed otherwise in the ratification debates. It seemed to placate the Anti-Federalist, who never had graver concerns, and was supported by the Federalist.
0: Judge Warren, why don't you take the next sentence? Thank you, Mike Gerard. I thought you might never ask. Literally. The next section of the Constitution provides... The Vice President of the United States shall be President of the Senate, but shall have no vote unless they be equally divided. This episode is being recorded in 2023, and for those of you who are awake in 2021 and 2022, you might remember that the U.S. Senate was evenly divided, but Vice President Harris gave the Democrats a one-vote majority whenever there was a tie vote, which proved crucial in connection with several legislative initiatives of President Joe Biden and the Democrat Party. But providing that the Vice President would preside over the Senate, or ever cast a vote there, was hardly a universal sentiment at the convention. In fact, the first draft of the Constitution, presented on August 6, 1787, provided in its Article 5, Section 4 as follows, the Senate shall choose its own President and other officers. This is very similar to the House of Representatives and the Speaker of the House. In fact, the proposal of having the Vice President preside over the Senate was a late-breaking proposal. It was first brought to the floor of the Constitutional Convention on September 7, 1787, and the Constitution was signed just 10 days later. The committee charged with finalizing the draft of the Constitution provided language that the vice president shall be ex officio president of the Senate. Ex officio means that by virtue of his or her office, the vice president automatically becomes the president of the Senate. This proposal was immediately opposed by Albert Gerry, who thought
2: We might as well put the president himself at the head of the legislature. The close intimacy that must subsist between the president and vice president makes it absolutely improper. I am against having any vice president.
0: This was an interesting sentiment because the vice president in the original constitution was the runner-up in the presidential election. As history played out, except for John Adams and George Washington, under the unamended constitution, the vice president was a political rival of the president, so he was anything but guaranteed to vote the way the president would want. Although the founding fathers were geniuses, they did not foresee this possibility. Instead, Gouverneur Morris argued that the vice president would be the heir apparent of the president, which is actually often true today but if there was no vice president, that the president of the Senate would be the heir apparent. So to him, it really didn't matter at all. Connecticut's Roger Sherman remarked that there was no danger in the vice president being the president of the Senate. Actually, if he didn't have this job, he would have nothing to do. Also, giving him a vote was essential to breaking ties. Virginia Governor Edmund Randolph opposed the clause, and North Carolina Delegate Hugh Williamson thought the vice president was unwanted. It was just a way to give the runner-up in the presidential election a consolation position. But Virginia's George Mason lodged a stronger complaint.
2: The office of vice president is an encroachment on the rights of the Senate, and it mixes too much the legislative and the executive, which, as well as the judiciary department, ought to be kept as separate as possible.
0: Although most of the convention debate was negative, the question, shall the vice president be ex-officio president of the Senate, passed eight states to two. Still, the vice president as a concept stuck in the throat of some. Elbridge Gerry listed as one of the reasons he would not sign the Constitution was the fact that the vice president was to be the head of the Senate. In fact, this concern flowed into the ratification debates. The anti-federalist Cato, Likely New York Governor George Clinton wrote in Cato Letter 5 that
2: A vice president is as unnecessary as he is dangerous in his influence.
0: Alexander Hamilton robustly came to the Vice President's defense in Federalist Paper 68, in which he explained that practically there needed to be a tiebreaker for the Senate, since it always would have an even number of senators and that to require a sitting senator to preside over the Senate would improperly affect the dynamics of that chamber. Justice Story gives a rather elaborate explanation of the reason for placing the vice president at the head of the Senate, which, as far as I can tell, was not particularly well-rooted in the historical record, but which does make quite a bit of sense and may very well have been an unspoken consideration of its supporters.
1: The strong motive for this arrangement undoubtedly arose from the desire to moderate state jealousy and to preserve state equality in the Senate. If the presiding officer of the Senate were to be chosen exclusively from its own members, it was supposed that the state upon which the choice might fall might possess either more or less than its due share of influence. If he were not allowed to vote except upon an equal division of the Senate, then the state would be deprived of his vote— If he were entitled to vote, and also in such cases to give a casting vote, then the State would, in effect, possess a double vote. If he could only vote as a member, then, in the case of an equality of votes, much inconvenience might arise from the indecision of the Senate. It might give rise to dangerous feuds, or intrigues, and create State or National agitations, It would be far better in such an equality of votes to refer the decision to a common arbiter, like the vice-president, chosen by a vote of the states, and therefore to be deemed the representative of all of them. The permanent appointment of any one of the senators as president of the Senate might give him an undue influence and control over measures during his official term." An appointment, for a single session only, would subject the body to constant agitations and intrigues, incompatible with its own dignity and convenience, and might introduce irregularities unfavourable to an impartial course of proceedings founded upon experience and an accurate knowledge of the duties of the office. These views appear to have a great weight in the Convention, and have been found entirely satisfactory to the people. The appointment of the Vice-President to preside in the Senate has been greatly conducive to the harmony of the States and the dignity of the General Government. As the Senate possesses the power to make rules to regulate its own proceedings, there is little danger that there can ever arise any serious abuse of the presiding power. The danger, if any, is rather the other way, that the presiding power will be silently weakened or openly surrendered, so as to leave to the office little more than the barren honor of the place, without influence
0: and without action. A much more depressing, but perhaps more realistic sentiment was provided by constitutional scholar John S. Landon. A vice president was provided for to act as president in case of a vacancy or the disability of the president. It was seen that his office would be a weary void, and to give him relief an excuse for existence. He was made President of the Senate. Now that's a ringing endorsement of the Vice Presidency. The next sentence is relatively straightforward. The Senate shall choose their officers, and also a President pro tempore, in the absence of the Vice President, or when he shall exercise the office of President of the United States like the House of Representatives, the Senate selects its own officers, including a president pro tempore, who is to preside over the Senate when the vice president isn't around. I could find no discussion of this provision in any of the Constitution Convention debates, the Federalist or Anti-Federalist Papers, or in the ratifying debates in the state constitutions. Nada. Zippo. This was because the provision was so obviously appropriate that it required no comment. Justice Story explains the necessity and wisdom of this provision.
1: The propriety of entrusting the Senate with the choice of its other officers, and also of a President pro tem, in the absence of the Vice President, or when he exercises the office of President, seems never to have been questioned, and indeed is so obvious that it is wholly unnecessary to vindicate it. Confidence between the Senate and its officers, and the power to make a suitable choice, and to secure a suitable responsibility for the faithful discharge of the duties of office are so indispensable for the public good that the provision will command universal assent as soon as it is mentioned." It has grown into a general practice for the Vice-President to vacate the Senatorial Chair a short time before the termination of each session in order to enable the Senate to choose a President pro tem who might already be in office if the Vice-President in the recess should be called to the Chair of State. The practice is founded in wisdom and sound policy as it immediately provides for an exigency which may well be expected to occur at any time, and prevents the choice from being influenced by temporary excitements or intrigues arising from the actual existence of a vacancy. As it is useful in peace to provide for war, so it is likewise useful in times of profound tranquility to provide for political agitations, which
0: may disturb the public harmony. In short, the Senate picking its own officers and having another officer preside over the Senate when the vice president is unavailable is wise and makes a great deal of practical sense. Our first vice president, John Adams, took his duties as the presiding officer of the Senate just like everything else, very seriously. But, as story related, over time, that practice diminished, and in fact, in the modern age, the Vice President usually does not preside in the Senate, unless it's in a ceremonial capacity like the State of the Union Address or to cast a tie-breaking vote. Bombastic Brent Bassett, would you like to get us started on the next provision?
2: Thanks, Judge. I thought you would never ask. Literally. The next provision was much more controversial, touching at the heart of public accountability for federal officers.
0: The Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. When sitting for that purpose, they shall be on oath or affirmation. When the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside, and no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office, and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment, according to the law.
2: Under this provision, the Senate has the power of conducting impeachment trials. Remember, as we learned in a prior episode, the House of Representatives has sole authority to actually impeach a federal officer. That, in essence, is a charge that the officer should be removed from office for misconduct, committing a crime, or for some other grave reason. But the officer is not removed on the vote of the House of Representatives. All it means is that the House of Representatives charges that he or she should be removed, and the power of removal rests with the Senate, Which makes its decision through a trial. That the Senate should have the power of trying impeachments was not at all obvious. Pennsylvania delegate John Dickinson, who was the first delegate to address how impeachment should work, suggested a very different approach. On June 2nd, he took the floor and moved
1: that the executive be made removable by the national legislature on the request of a majority of the legislatures of individual states. It is necessary to place the power of removal somewhere. I do not like the plan of impeaching the great officers of state. I do not know how a provision could be made for the removal of them in a better mode than which I have proposed." I have no ideas on abolishing the state governments, as some gentlemen seem inclined to do. The happiness of this country, in my opinion, requires considerable power to be left in the hands of the states.
2: Delaware Delegate Gunning Bedford seconded the motion. Connecticut Delegate Roger Sherman contended that the national legislature should have power to remove the executive at pleasure. But Virginia delegate George Mason was concerned. He did not want the executive to be controlled by the legislature, which he thought would happen if the legislature controlled impeachment. Some mode of displacing an unfit magistrate is rendered indispensable by the fallibility of those who choose, as well as by the corruptibility of the man chosen. I oppose decidedly the making the executive the mere creature of the legislature as a violation of the fundamental principle of good government. Stated another way, if the executive could be removed by the legislature at will, the executive would be pressured into taking actions or otherwise subjected to the whims of the legislative branch violating separation of powers and checks and balances. James Madison and James Wilson teamed up in observing that Dickinson's motion would give too much power to the smaller states. That is, a minority of the people as represented by their senators could block the actions of the majority. This would be especially problematic if the executive was believed to be a criminal by the majority, but the minority refused to remove him. It also could tempt the president to pay special attention to some senators to ensure he would not be impeached. Furthermore, they thought it bad policy to introduce the states directly into this issue when states' interests would otherwise be protected. Dickinson countered with a lengthy discourse, including the need for the separation of powers and for states to hedge against the power of the national government. He argued for the necessity of a strong executive and a strong branch of government that represented the states equally. What this had to do with the motion was not particularly clear. The motion to remove the executive on request of a majority of the state legislatures was defeated, nine states to one. The August 6th first draft of the Constitution provided that the Supreme Court should try all impeachments. Over the course of the remainder of the convention, this provision was dropped and the Senate gained the authority. However, the record of the Constitutional Convention is bare about why that was done. Still, the change was a serious concern for at least one vital delegate. Virginia Delegate Edmund Randolph, who would become the first Attorney General of the United States under George Washington, had a long litany of reasons why he would not support the Constitution. One of which was that the Senate would be the trial venue for impeachment of the executive. However, the opposition to moving the trial to the Senate was sparsely voiced in the convention. The meager opposition at the Constitutional Convention was not an indicator about how this power was received during the ratification debates. The Anti Federalists often attacked the Constitution in connection with this provision. Cato, for example, argued that because senators gave the president advice, that they could not be fair judges of an impeachment trial involving the president. Others observed that the senators had the sole power to impeach their fellow senators, which was obviously inappropriate and corrupt. Likewise, because senators approved the appointment of federal officers, the senators would not be fair judges of such appointees. An Anti-Federalist Tract, the Letter from the Federal Farmer, possibly written by Richard Henry Lee or Melacton Smith, explained.
0: All officers are impeachable before the Senate only, before the men by whom they are appointed, or who are consenting to the appointment of these officers. No judgment of conviction on an impeachment can be given unless two-thirds of the Senators agree. Under these circumstances, the right of impeachment in the House can be of but little importance. The House cannot expect often to convict the offender, and therefore probably will be but seldom or never exercise the right. In addition, the insecurity and inconveniences attending his organization before mentioned, it may be observed that it is extremely difficult to secure the people against the fatal effects of corruption and influence.
2: Removing the power of impeachment from the Senate was a consistent suggestion of the Anti-Federalists. For example, Edmund Randolph listed vesting the power of impeachment with the Senate as one of the reasons he opposed adopting the Constitution, and he advocated for Virginia to take the lead in recommending an amendment to the Constitution that would provide a separate tribunal for trying impeachments. In fact, although the state of New York voted to ratify the Constitution, its ratifying convention issued a set of resolutions on July 26, 1788, which petitioned the new government to consider several amendments, one that created a somewhat Byzantine new method of trying impeachments. That proposal, as intriguing as it might have seemed, went nowhere. The Federalists vigorously responded to these attacks. James Iredell, writing as Marcus, responded that no one had developed a better alternative. He thought it no more liable to abuse than any other court. Tench Cox would become a leading American economist and public officer, serving in many government capacities, including as assistant treasurer to Alexander Hamilton. He wrote that the trial of impeachment was appropriately vested in the Senate because in reality, the Senate represented the people, and that is where the power should lie. But the heavy artillery came from Koch's future boss. Hamilton was not going to let the Anti-Federalists establish a beachhead on this issue. In fact, he dedicated the entirety of Federalist Paper 65 to this single issue. He began his discussion by noting that impeachment involved alleged abuse or violation of the public trust by government officers, which generally meant that the subject would be considered political. As such, impeachment will seldom fail to agitate the passions of the whole community and to divide it into parties more or less friendly or inimical to the accused. In many cases, it will connect itself. With the pre existing factions, and will enlist all their animosities, partialities, influence, and interests on one side or on the other. And in such cases, there will always be the greatest danger that the decision will be regulated more by the comparative strength of parties than by the real demonstrations of innocence or guilt.
1: Just a quick interruption here, bombastic Brunt Bassett. The two impeachments of President Trump pretty much followed the pattern outlined by Hamilton, as did the prior impeachments of President Andrew Johnson and President Bill Clinton. Hamilton and the other Founding Fathers were so brilliant.
2: Yes, yes they were, Mike Gerard. Now, let's get back to their brilliance. Hamilton continued to explain that it was a difficult task to locate the power to impeach in a government of elected officials. Since political actors would have political allies and opponents, neutrality was hardly to be expected. He then observed that the true spirit of impeachment was to be a national inquest into the conduct of public men, and that required that representatives of the entire nation be involved. He noted that the British and many state constitutions divided up the responsibility as the Constitution did. That is, that impeachment was given to the lower house and the trial to the upper chamber. Hamilton then explained how the Senate was uniquely composed and positioned to fairly fulfill the duty of trying an impeachment. Where else than in the Senate could have been found a tribunal sufficiently dignified or sufficiently independent? What other body would be likely to feel confidence enough in its own situation to preserve? Unawed and uninfluenced, the necessary impartiality between an individual accused and the representatives of the people, his accusers? Could the Supreme Court have been relied upon as answering this description, it is much to be doubted whether the members of that tribunal would at all times be endowed with so eminent a portion of fortitude as would be called for in the execution of so difficult a task. And it is still more to be doubted whether they would possess the degree of credit and authority which might, on certain occasions, be indispensable towards reconciling the people to a decision that should happen to clash with an accusation brought by their immediate representatives. A deficiency in the first would be fatal to the accused, and the last dangerous to the public tranquility. James Iredell made very similar arguments in the North Carolina Ratifying Convention. Hamilton's Federalist Paper 65 also argued that the Supreme Court was too small to try such an impeachment and that it would be impractical to try to enlarge it by adding new officials to the court for an impeachment trial. He explained, There will be no jury to stand between the judges who are to pronounce the sentence of the law and the party who is to receive or suffer it. The awful discretion which a court of impeachments must necessarily have to doom, to honor, or to infamy the most confidential and the most distinguished characters of the community forbids the commitment of the trust to a small number of persons. He then explained that because impeachment had no criminal or civil consequence, it just removes the convicted from office, that the courts must be free to impartially try criminal or civil proceedings without having already rendered a decision in a related impeachment. This also eliminated some kind of hybrid court, which would include the Senate plus the Supreme Court. The creation of a brand new court of impeachments seemed impractical it would require a standing cost or great trouble in convening it when accusations arose. After all, the trial would require representatives from across the nation to meet the purpose of a national inquiry. Finally, Hamilton argued that even if the impeachment process was imperfect, it was not so imperfect as to be a reason to vote against the ratification of the Constitution. But though one or the other of the substitutes which have been examined, or some other that might be devised, should be thought preferable to the plan, in this respect, reported by the Convention, it will not follow that the Constitution ought, for this reason, to be rejected. If mankind were to resolve to agree, in no institution of government, until every part of it has been adjusted To the most exact standard of perfection, society would soon become a general scene of anarchy and the world a desert. Where is the standard of perfection to be found? Who will undertake to unite the discordant opinions of a whole community in the same judgment of it, and to prevail upon one conceited projector to renounce his infallible criterion or the fallible criterion of his more conceited neighbor? To answer the purpose of the adversaries of the Constitution, they ought to prove, not merely that particular provisions in it are not the best which might have been imagined, but that the plan upon the whole is bad and pernicious. Joseph's story aptly summarized the framers' view of the Senate being the repository of impeachment powers.
1: The great objects to be attained in the selection of a tribunal for the trial of impeachments are impartiality, integrity, intelligence, and independence. If either of these qualities is wanting, the trial is essentially defective. To ensure impartiality, the body must be in some degree removed from popular power and passions, from the influence of sectional prejudices, and from the still more dangerous influence of party spirit. To secure integrity there must be a lofty sense of duty, and a deep responsibility to God as well as to future ages. To secure intelligence there must be age, experience, and high intellectual powers and attainments. To secure independence there must be numbers as well as talents, and a confidence resulting from permanency of place Dignity of station and consciousness of patriotism, the Senate, from its very organization, must be presumed to possess all these qualities in a high degree, and certainly in a degree not surpassed by any other political body in the country.' If it should be asked why the power to try impeachments might not have been confined to a court of law of the highest grade, it may be answered that such a tribunal is not, on various accounts, so fit for the purpose. In the first place, the offences to be tried are generally of a political character, such as a court of law is not ordinarily accustomed to examine, and such as its common functions exclude." The senators, on the contrary, necessarily become familiar with such subjects. In the next place, the strict course of proceedings in courts of law is ill-adapted to the searching out of political delinquencies. In the next place, such political functions are in no small degree incompatible with the due discharge of other judicial duties." They have a tendency to involve the judges in party interests and party contests, and thereby to withdraw from their minds those studies and habits which are most important in the ordinary administration of justice to secure independence and impartiality. In the next place, the judges are themselves appointed by the executive— and may be called upon to try cases, in which he, or some officer enjoying his confidence, and acting under his orders, is the party impeached. In the last place, a judge may be the very party impeached, and under such circumstances a court of law may be presumed to labor under as strong feelings and sympathies for the accused as any other body." It could never be desirable to call upon the Supreme Court of the Nation to try an impeachment of one of its own members for an official misdemeanor, so that, to say the least, the tribunal selected by the Constitution is as unobjectionable as any which could be pointed out.
2: Mike Gerard, would you like to review how trials proceed in the Senate?
1: Bombastic Brent Bassett, that would be my distinct pleasure. Now, as explained earlier, before the Senators begin any trial for impeachment, they are placed under oath or affirmation.
0: If I might cut in here for just a second, or okay, a minute, when I select a jury, they have to take two oaths. The first is that before the jury is chosen, the members of the jury pool must swear or affirm to truthfully answer the questions presented by me and the lawyers. That way, we can select an appropriately qualified and impartial jury. Second, after the jury has been selected, they have to swear or affirm that they will justly decide the questions presented to them and they will render their verdict only in accordance with the evidence introduced and my instructions about the law. These oaths provide both an external and internal commitment to follow the law and meet out justice. I'm done. For now.
1: Well, that's a good illustration, Judge Warren and likewise, the senators have to take a similar oath when they convene in essence as the jury for an impeachment trial. The specific language of the oath is not in the Constitution, but according to the U.S. Senate website, the senators have to swear or affirm that they shall do impartial justice in the case before them. Echoing Judge Warren, Justice Story explains the importance of the oath. The Senate, when sitting as a court of impeachment, shall be on oath or affirmation. This is required in all cases of trials in the common courts of law. Jurymen, as well as judges, are always under oath or affirmation in the discharge of their respective duties. It is a sanction appealing to their consciences, and calling upon them to reflect well upon their duties— The provision was deemed the more necessary, because in trials of impeachment in England, the House of Lords, which is the high court of impeachment, is not under oath, but each peer makes a declaration simply upon his honor, although, if he were a witness in any common trial, he must give his testimony on oath. The wisdom of this provision was self evident, and hardly a word about it was argued in the Constitutional Convention or the ratification debates the next sentence of this section provides that when the president of the united states is tried the chief justice of the supreme court shall preside this is very unusual because as we just learned the vice president is the constitutional officer who presides over the senate to switch to the chief justice of the supreme court has a twofold advantage first it prohibits the vice president who has a vested interest in the outcome of the case from interfering After all, if the president is removed from office, bingo, the vice president becomes president. On the other hand, some vice presidents might want to protect their boss from impeachment. Either way, it certainly doesn't seem like an impartial decision maker would be in that chair. Justice Story also explained why choosing the chief justice of the Supreme Court was appropriate under these circumstances. His impartiality and independence would be as little liable to suspicion as those of any other person in the country. The dignity of his station might well be deemed an adequate pledge for his possession of the highest accomplishments, and his various learning and great experience in the law might well be presumed to enable him to give essential assistance to the Senate— not only in regulating their proceedings in such delicate matters, but also in securing the rights of the accused by protecting him against unintentional mistakes and errors of judgment in the body. The gravity of the situation and need for impartiality in connection with an impeachment trial of the President justifies the special requirement that the Chief Justice preside over the trial. This was an uncontroversial provision in the convention and the ratification debates. The next clause provides that a conviction requires approval of two-thirds of the senators present. The rationale behind this threshold was mostly passed over in the Constitutional Convention as well as the ratification debates. However, Justice Story once again comes to the rescue with an explanation of this threshold. It is added, and no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. The reason for this restriction, doubtless, is that if a bare majority only were sufficient to convict of political offences, there would be danger, in times of high popular commotion or party spirit, that the influence of the House of Representatives would be found irresistible." In cases of trial by jury, absolute unanimity is required to the conviction of a criminal. In cases of legislation, a majority only is required for a decision, and here an intermediate number between an entire unanimity and a bare majority is adopted. If anything short of unanimity ought to be allowed, two-thirds seems a reasonable limitation." As Justice Story related, experience has proven that unanimity is almost impossible to achieve, and a bare majority would allow the complete weaponization of impeachment by political opponents. The Founding Fathers found that the two-thirds requirement is a sufficient protection to prevent political impeachments, but is not such a high barrier as to prevent convictions when justified. The two-thirds threshold is also present in connection with the Senate ratifying treaties, as well as in the convening of a constitutional convention by both houses of the Congress. And now, Judge Warren, would you like to bring us home?
0: Mike Girard, it will be my pleasure. The next clause provides that an impeachment conviction has the legal effect of removal from office. The clause also provides that the impeach can be barred from holding future positions of any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. In other words, you can kick the scoundrel out of office and stop him or her from taking a new position in the federal government. But the text also provides that those are the only consequences. It is not a legal judgment in any other way. As a judge, I currently preside over business court cases and adult felony cases. When a jury or I find in favor of a plaintiff in a civil case, the result of the verdict is a money judgment that the defendant has to pay, which could be a few thousand to millions of dollars. Likewise, a guilty verdict in a criminal case brings criminal sanctions, which can include fines and imprisonment, even life in prison. Although Michigan, where I preside, has never had capital punishment, in many states the conviction of a heinous crime can bring execution. Impeachment brings no such consequences. There are no money judgments, fines, incarceration, or executions. It just involves removal from office and, if the Senate chooses, a future bar from federal office. That even means that an impeached person can even serve in state or local office. This has the added advantage that if someone is impeached because of political spite, he or she suffers no consequences other than the loss of office. This provision, however, provides that someone convicted of impeachment is still liable for indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to the law. In other words, if someone is impeached because they committed a crime, they don't somehow gain immunity in the justice system. They can still be prosecuted. Or if they commit a civil wrong, like defamation or sexual harassment, they can be sued by the injured person for money damages. These legal consequences were in accord with English law, and they were barely discussed in the Constitutional Convention and the ratifying debates. After all, the wisdom of the limitation was self-evident. Some key takeaways from this episode. One-third of senators are elected every two years, providing a necessary stability in the legislative branch while also allowing fresh views to be interjected in the body. Senators must be at least 30 years old, a citizen of the United States for nine years, and an inhabitant of the state when they are elected. This was intended to ensure that senators had the wisdom and experience to fulfill their roles. The Vice President is the presiding officer of the Senate, but has no vote unless there is a tie. The Senate has the sole power to try impeachments and two-thirds of the senators present must vote to convict. The two-thirds threshold ensures that impeachment is not used as a political witch hunt and also allows for the removal of officers who abuse the public trust. Convicted federal officers are removed from office and they can also be banned from serving in any federal position in the future. However, impeach officers can be separately sued in court in civil actions or prosecuted for crimes to ensure that justice is done. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide. Our other two fabulous Patriot narrators are Mike Gerard Skanechny, who is our sound designer and Patriot Week's video content producer, and multi-talented, bombastic Brent Bassett. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org to learn more about America's first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers and other great patriots, and flags from our history, along with all the other fantastic resources we have to offer. Our fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Until next time, when we continue our exploration of the United States Congress, God bless you, and God bless America.
1: Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at patriotweek.org, which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then-10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren@patriotweek.org. at Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History, by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.